it's good to be back uh, with you guys. Been gone the last two weeks uh, out in the in the mountains, but it's uh, it's good to be back and excited to worship with you and to dive into God's word this morning. Um, I will tell you, uh, my voice is struggling because I screamed all night at the BSU game last night. You got any BSU fans this morning? Okay, we're together, okay? We're in this. We're in this in the long haul. Um, but yeah, the throat, uh, my, even my buddy Scott, uh, he, he's like, man, you're going to be able to preach tomorrow. I'm like, ah, I'll be fine. I'll be good. This morning, a little bit raspy this morning, you know? Uh, but glad to finish up First Peter with you guys. We've been on this journey for eight weeks now. And today we get to wrap up First Peter chapter 5. And uh, next week we start a new sermon series called Life on Mission. I'm really excited to launch this new sermon series as we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus' mission for us and how he's called us to live as disciples and how to learn how to be disciple makers. I'm really excited for next week. And so I want to encourage you guys to come back as we launch a new sermon series next week. Uh, but today, Peter writes some very... Um, candid words for us, uh, for not only the audience that he was writing to, the people in Galatia, the region of uh, Galatia, but we're going to find out today that the words that Peter has for them, that they work for us today too, that they're words spoken for us today. Uh, we've been saying this passage almost every single week because it is the core passage of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6 he writes to the people, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Everybody say rejoice this morning. Rejoice. rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Rejoicing in the midst of trials, he says. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, these trials that have come to you have come in the midst of you rejoicing because these trials are refining you by fire. You are growing and becoming more like Jesus in the midst of difficulty. And that's what trials do. And so he's been talking to them about what does it look like to navigate trials? What does it look like to live as a Christian in the midst of difficulty? And today we wrap up in uh, chapter 5. Peter writes this in verse 1. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter says, I write to you elders, as a fellow elder to you. The question that has to be asked is, well, what is an elder? An elder is a position in the church that Jesus established in his church through his apostles as people to oversee the church, people to help lead the church, help serve in the church. Paul talks about what elders are like in Titus chapter 1. He says this, he says, The reason I left you in Crete is you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As he's, as he's writing to Titus, Paul's saying, I want you to put elders into every single church to oversee the church. Then he goes on to say, well, what, what is an elder? 
What kind of character qualities does an does a elder have? He goes on to say, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Peter's continuing the message that Paul had written in the New Testament that in every single church there should be an eldership. There should be elders that oversee the elders. And he goes on, oversees the church, and he goes on to talk about what that elder looks like. An elder is an overseer in Jesus' church that is a servant leader and a pastor of people. Once you notice that, they're a servant leader that is an overseer and a pastor of people. You see, I want you to notice there's a reoccurring theme that Peter talks about and that Paul talks about in Titus, that they are a people who does not do anything to gain selfishly. Notice what what Peter says, not pursuing dishonest game, but eager to serve. Everybody say serve this morning. There are people that serve, that oversee, that help the church grow, that help the church be a people that grow in becoming a disciple and help the church and its staff make wise decisions. An elder doesn't ask what he can get. An An elder asks what he can give, what he can serve, how he can serve. And I want to just tell you, if you don't know, we have three elders that serve here at Real Life Ministries. I myself operate as an elder. Jim Coons and Joel Ferrando serve as elders. And then we have a staff team. Uh, Myself, Joe, and uh, Jenny that serve as ministers, as staff people. But it's those elders that oversee the church and help lead the church moving forward. And I'm proud to say we've got good elders here at our church. Uh, Jim Coons is in the back serving right now. Why is he serving? Because he cares about the church. He understands what it means to be an elder. It means to serve. Uh, Joel Ferrando is gone with his family this weekend, but we're having technical difficulties this morning. What Jim's doing, Jim's reaching out to Joel and saying, I've got problems. I don't know how to fix them. And what's Joel doing? He's texting back and forth and saying, I'm here to help. How can I serve? Even though he's gone with his family. Why? Because Joel understands. I'm here to serve. Even in the midst of an unfortunate situation where he should be out resting, he's still serving. Why? Because he's a good elder. Because he cares about the flock. He cares about the church. He cares about the people. God wants godly people who display gentle servant leadership. Say gentle this morning. We're going to hear this word throughout the rest of the day. Because it's a word that is being described in all of 1 Peter when we really look at it in its context. He wants gentle servant leadership and pastoral care to oversee his church because it shows the world what God is like because God himself is a pastor who cares for his people. He is a shepherd who cares for his people. He goes on to talk about the rest of the congregation. Verse 5, Peter says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Say humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I said this a couple weeks ago, but it needs to be repeated because I need to remember it, you need to remember it, we need to remember it. A humble person gently submits to authority and honors like Jesus submitted to the Father. A humble person submits to authority because in that you are showing what the relationship is from Jesus to the Father and what God invites us into, which is not to live a life of creating chaos, but creating order, creating peace, creating shalom. That that's what humble people do. And I want to, I want to go back to this illustration to remind us where humility comes from. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, when someone comes to know Jesus and starts following Jesus, and understanding who God is, and we just sang about, about the, the amazing goodness of God, right? And how he's coming and pursuing us continually. When we first come to know Jesus, we begin to understand the glory of God, the majesty of God, the magnificence of God, the beautiful, wonderful God that we serve. We begin to understand how amazing God is. And when we first begin to understand how amazing God is, as we follow him, that knowledge of the goodness of God should continue to increase or decrease? It should continue to what? Increase. All through life. The goodness and amazingness of God should continue to increase in our lives. Even in the midst of difficulty, as Peter's writing to these people. Even in the midst of trial, your understanding of the goodness of God for all of us continues to grow. Are there times that we question and doubt and wrestle with God 100%. Right? And it's in the midst of the trials that God's forging an understanding of who God is in us. And at the same time, as we begin to understand the goodness and grandeur of God, we also begin to understand in that moment how frail I am as a human being. Right? How dependent upon God I really am. That I begin to really understand that if God is so amazing and so good and so grand, I also begin to understand my shortcoming. I begin to understand my own sinfulness, my own depravity, my shallowness, my pride, my own sin. And when that begins to happen, as I begin to understand the amazingness of who God is, and I begin to understand how much I am not like God. There's a big gap there, right? And in that gap, there's one person that says, I'll close it. And who is that? It's Jesus. And in that, I begin to understand how much I should live with humility. That God is amazing. And that I fall short. And yet here's the amazing thing. Is that God doesn't say, yes you fall short and I don't want anything to do with you. He says, yes you fall short but I died for you and you are made with so much potential. And I want to bring it out of you. I want to pull it out of you. I want to forge it in you. Which leads us to even more humility. Doesn't it? That we know nothing compared to God. And Peter's writing to the younger, and he's saying, you and all of you in the church should be a people of humility. 
This leads to a life of living with a posture of humility. And here's the thing. Humility gives life to discipleship. Write that down, would you? Humility gives life to discipleship. What is discipleship? It's relationship between you and others in the church that help you grow to become more like Jesus. And if you live in a posture of humility, you're going to grow in becoming more like Jesus. Pride kills discipleship. Pride kills your relationship with the Lord. It kills your relationship with others. And Peter is writing and saying, be a people, all of you that close yourselves with humility. Understand where you've come from and who you are. He goes on to say, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's, that's one worth highlighting right now in our culture, isn't it? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why is Peter transitioning right here? He goes from talking about elders to young people, to the rest of the church, that there should be humility, that elders should serve with, with gentleness and as a pastor and as not someone who's going to gain, but someone who's going to serve. Why is he transitioning this? And then he says, watch out for the enemy who wants to destroy you, who wants to come around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Why is he transitioning this? I'm guessing the reason why he's transitioning this, I'm just guessing here. I have no way to prove it. But Peter's been writing. He's been saying, you need to be a priest. You need to love well in the midst of persecution. You need husbands and wives, slaves and masters. All these different relationships. This is how you navigate the midst of trial. But then he begins to talk about inside the church. And I'm just guessing in the midst of trial that things are starting to get relationally. There's conflict that's starting to take place inside the church. And he's helping them understand how to navigate the relational conflict that's taking place inside the church. Because oftentimes, when we're in conflict with ourselves in the midst of trial, when we're in conflict with others, it's easy to begin to point the finger towards fellow brothers and sisters and think that they are the enemy. Anybody experienced that before? Anybody experiencing it right now? I'm seeing it. Christians attacking Christians because they're stressed, full of, full of anxiousness, full of worry, full of all sorts of different things, and they begin to think they're the enemy. And what Peter's saying is they're not the enemy. Are you with me this morning? They're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. The devil calls it the evil one, the Satan. And this is what the enemy has been doing from the very, very beginning. Is that when we struggle with faith, we then begin to target the very people that God says, I oh, know I want you to love them. I want you to be united with them. It's been happening from the very beginning. Remember in Genesis? They, they Adam and Eve, choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God begins to enter into relationship with them, walking in the garden, verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? And the man said, 
well, the woman you put me here with, who's the enemy? The woman. She's the one that gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. I'm sure that went really well, right? That always goes well in marriage, right? It's your fault. God, it's your fault and it's her fault. You guys are the enemy. No, no, no. The enemy is the enemy. Your enemy is not your fellow believer. It's the enemy. And then he goes on to talk about the anxiety that they're experiencing. Remember what it says in there? What does he say about the anxiety that's going on inside of them? What are they supposed to do with it? What's it say? I want to hear from you. Cast it all on the Lord. What does that mean? It means to talk to the Lord about it. It means to to pray with the Lord about it. It means to journal with the Lord about it. It means to continually come to the Lord, to cast it, to, to send it to him. Paul says this, do not be anxious about anything. Except for BSU football. No, it doesn't say that right there. Oh, wait, that's not in there. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, every situation, even in 2021, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Praying, journaling, go to the Lord. Lord, this is what I'm wrestling with, struggling. Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with looking at other Christians and going, they're the enemy. Here's what I want you guys to do. Would you commit this week, Monday to Friday, just Monday to Friday, five days, not even seven, five. Would you commit this week to opening up your Bible every day to read your Bible for 10 minutes Read it. Find the truth. Ten minutes. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a piece of paper out, a journal. Go down to Hobby Lobby or, or whatever the place is and find that cool journal, right? Whatever, whatever your fancy, whatever it works, right? Get a journal. Whatever you read, I want you to read it. This is what I want you to do. What is God saying to you? Answer that question. What is God saying? What is God saying? Write it down. Guess what? If you say, I don't know, that's okay. I don't know. I don't know what he's saying. Because the next thing I'm going to tell you is get into a home group and they'll help you know what it's saying. The second thing I want you to write down is how are you feeling with what you just read? How are you feeling with what you just read? How are you feeling in general? Process it with the Lord. Cast it on him. Talk to the Lord about it. I'm scared, Lord. I'm anxious, Lord. I'm angry, Lord. I'm overwhelmed, Lord. 
Read God's word. Write about how you're feeling. And then here's the last thing. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? What would it look like if we cast all of our anxiety, all of our fear, all of our worry onto the Lord and we were reminded every day, my brother and sister is not my enemy. How would it change the way we live every day? What would it look like? Peter's reminding them that God wants to hear the anxiousness. He wants to hear the fear because only he can bring the gentle peace that our soul desires. There is nothing in this world that will bring us peace. There is nothing in this world that is going to bring us shalom. There is nothing that's going to comfort our souls apart from Jesus. And we have an enemy that is going to do everything he can to convince you that that's not true. That your job will satisfy your soul. That this thing that I'm pursuing, this hobby, that it will satisfy your soul. And Peter's reminding them, there's nothing. There's nothing apart from Jesus. He goes on to say about the enemy, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He's reminding them, you're not the only ones. All the believers are going through the same thing. They're going through trials, difficult things. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's reminding them, you're not the only one that's suffering. And guess what? God will restore you. God will give you courage. God will give you strength. You have to stand firm in the midst of the hurricane that you feel like you're going through right now. Stand firm because God is going to restore the strength that you desire and crave. But understand this, the devil won't quit. The enemy won't quit. The scheme of the devil is plain and simple. Jesus said it, John 10, 10. He said, the enemy has come. The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that may have life and have it to the full. This is the enemy. This is the, this is the scheme. And he's never going to quit. He won't quit. If God is about loving him and loving others, if that's God's agenda, then obviously the enemy is the opposite of that agenda, right? To not love God and to not love your neighbor. And Peter's reminding them, this is the message, that you're called to be a people who walk with humility, to walk with gentleness, and to resist the devil and his schemes. And his schemes are to destroy you and destroy godly relationships around you. Work through the conflict. Be a person of humility. Be a person who fights for reconciliation. And then Peter wraps it up by saying this in verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Sounds similar to stand firm in it, right? To stand firm in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Mark is John Mark that we know about, uh, written, wrote the gospel most likely from Peter. Uh, he's in the mission, involved in the mission still as he's partnering with Peter. But who is Babylon? Does anybody remember from week one who Babylon is? This is going to be a quiz, right? What, what did you say? It's Rome. It's the church in Rome. Why is he using Babylon and not the word church in Rome? Why, why is Peter using that? It's code. He doesn't want anybody to know where he's writing from and who the church in Rome is because they're being persecuted. If someone gets a hold of this letter that is the wrong person, a government official, they become, um, what's the word? Yeah, they become known, aware, and, and they also become vulnerable, right? And so he's saying, the church in Rome, where I'm sending you this letter, the church sends you her greetings, so does my son Mark. He goes on to say, greet one another with a kiss of love. And he ends, peace to all of you who are in Christ peace not chaos not anger not anxiety but peace shalom wholeness this is what he blesses to the church in Galatia I want to recap 1 Peter with you really quick as we wrap up today in the midst of writing to a persecuted and beaten down people, Peter reminds them to enter into the kingdom. Would you say enter? Enter into the kingdom. That we as disciples of Jesus are called to enter into Jesus' kingdom. That his kingdom is ruling and reigning today. And that we have the opportunity to enter into his lordship. To submit to his rule and reign here on earth. And he tells them, the way you're going to do that is to remember who you are. That you're a priest. Why you exist. That a priest is called to bring heaven and earth together. That a priest is called to reconcile people back to God. And that how they live their lives will display to the world what it means to be reconciled into God's kingdom. He talks to them about to be gentle in their response to persecution. To submit to honor, to be gentle, to suffer by doing good, to honor those in authority, even those that are in authority in the church, to remember who the enemy is and to respond in gentleness towards brothers and sisters. Do you notice the continual word that I keep saying? Gentleness, submission, honor, loving, serving. This is how we enter into the kingdom of God. These are the things that God looks for for his kingdom. This is the qualities of his people. And if you think about it, that's the way Jesus lived. I just want to ask you, right now, in the world that we live in, how are Christians being viewed today? Is this how we're being viewed? I think for some, yes. For some, maybe we have some work to do. I want to tell you this story as we wrap up today. 
been able to talk to um, our staff team about this and just amazing blessing of what God's doing in our church. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, we did a big project in Meridian Elementary. You guys remember aware of that project? If you don't know, uh, we served our community, we served Meridian Elementary, which is a Title I school, a uh, school that is below the poverty line. And uh, we went and, and served them by literally um, upgrading their whole outside facilities. We put thousands of dollars into that, into that school and literally transformed it. Not only did we do that, but in addition to that, you guys um, took care of school supplies for all the teachers there. That Normally, they would come out of their own budget. We took care of it for them and blessed them. And what came out of that was so much of your guys' own hearts of just going, man, it was so good to serve. It was so good to see the transformation of that school. But we weren't the only ones that were transformed. Other people are being transformed. I got a, a message from the mayor a next, the next week saying, can we, can we have coffee? I said, yeah. And he came to our building and I had a meeting with him and he he said, what'd you guys do? And I told him what we did. And, and he was encouraged and he was impressed. But then I showed him the video. And after he got done watching the video of the transformation, he was like, people need to know about this. This is unbelievable. Not only did he find out, but uh, Trent Berg, who's on the city council, he found out about it. Who leads the city council. He texts me and said, amazing work. We're letting other people in the faith community know what it looks like for the church to be mobilized. And other people are starting to think, other churches are starting to think, what would it look like if we started serving our community like that? What good could we do? Because if a group of people decided that they were going to go and work their tails off on a Saturday and be a humble servant and to respond in the midst of chaos in our society with gentleness, with peace, with love. Not only is Meridian Elementary being changed, not only are you being changed, but now we are changing our city and potentially the faith community. And guess what? It requires the church. It requires you. It requires us. And guess what? It's no different than in the first century. Silas, Mark, Peter, the church in Rome, Babylon, encouraging believers in Asia Minor to carry out the mission of Jesus. This is what Peter wraps up his final words, that we as disciples, that as they as disciples of Jesus carry on the mission of Jesus, that we get to do the same today that we get to be a part of that same mission to gently encourage believers in the midst of difficult times to make disciples who make disciples in the midst of difficult times in the midst of persecution this is what Jesus is inviting us into this is what Peter's inviting us into to carry on the mission that they would continue on in the first century so a couple things I want you to think about as we wrap up today in the midst of conflict we are to be a gentle people this requires us to stand firm in Christ whatever role we play in Jesus' church, whether we're an elder, whether we're a leader, whether we're a volunteer, 
whether we're just attending, Jesus is inviting us to get into the game and to enter into his kingdom. The devil's not going to stop warring against our souls. He will tell us not to be a gentle people. He will tell us to wage war the way he thinks war should be fought. And Jesus invites us to something different. He invites us to live differently than the rest of the world. We must stand firm and remember that my brother and my sister is not my enemy. But the enemy is the enemy. And we must be a people who carry the mission forward like Peter did. We must revere Christ as king and make disciples. Because as Peter talked about it earlier, we will give an account for our lives. We will have to stand before Jesus and give an account for how we live. And he will ask us, did you represent me to the world? And yes, we will confess times, Lord, no, I didn't. But because we confess in humility that no, Lord, I did not. And all of it will be laid out. And we'll have to say yes. And he'll say, because of your humility, I will lift you up. I will stand in the gap for you. And even though you failed in all these regards, these are all the things that you, you did amazingly well in. And our hope and cry for all of us is that he'll say, well done. Good and faithful, what? Servant. Humility. So as we wrap up today, and we get ready to take communion, and we wrap up First Peter, what is Jesus saying to you this morning? What do you need to confess to him? What lack of faith are you struggling with? Maybe it's sin. And the second question I want you to be thinking about is who can you be praying for that's hurting today? Who are the people that are hurting? Who are the people that need a shepherd to reach out to them? Who are the people that need to hear the good news? Who are the people that need to see the good news through your life? Could you spend time praying from this morning? Let's go to the Lord this morning.